Okay, I'll invite you to find your seat here if you're in the house. Those of you that are worshiping with us online, good to have you here. Uh, Can we give it up for a second for Pastor Tim Shepard, guest wingman this morning? So good. Like he said, we're looking for volunteers for Easter Sunday, 8, 10, and noon. And then the hope is that we get enough volunteers through that process that we can launch full kids ministry, zero to fifth grade, for this service, the Sunday after Easter. So we depend on Jesus, but we're also depending on you to do that, okay? So there we go. Uh, We're in, uh, I think, the eighth week, maybe the ninth week of our series on the Everyday Prophets, going through the minor prophets of the Old Testament. We started with Hosea, and then we had Joel. Have you been paying attention? Do do we, yeah? I know. It's hard. It's hard. Hosea, we'll try it again. You know, take it from the top here, ladies and gentlemen. Amos, uh, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. That, that was last week, but we got to say it the right way. Don't we? Habakkuk, right? And then it's Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi will bring us in for a landing. So I'm in Zephaniah. Chapter 1 this morning, I'll give you an opportunity to turn there. Zephaniah prophesies at roughly the same time that Habakkuk does. So you might remember some of the historical context for Habakkuk. Habakkuk prophesies kind of during the latter part of the 6th century B.C. The northern kingdom of Israel has been swept away by the Assyrian. Uh, The Assyrians have conquered it, but the Babylonians are kind of on the way in. And Habakkuk is looking at what's happening in Judah, where he prophesies, And he sees that there's all kinds of injustice. And so he lifts up his voice to the Lord about the injustice. And the Lord, of course, says that in response to this small injustice, there's this large and terrible thing that's about to happen. Babylonian army is going to come and sweep everything away. But don't worry, buddy, I've got your back, right? The just shall live by faith. And Zephaniah prophesies at approximately the same time. So these are during the reforms of young King Josiah. Josiah had tried to get God's people back on track, but as it turns out, and as we'll see in Zephaniah, the habits of idolatry are very hard to break. And so Zephaniah looks into the future, and he also sees a coming devastation, but his message to the people of God is slightly different than what Habakkuk's message was. Zephaniah's name comes from a Hebrew word, tzaphan, a verb that means something like to conceal. And so what's going to happen in the book of Zephaniah is that God's hitherto concealed plan is going to be revealed in the words of the prophet Zephaniah. And so with that, we lift our hearts to you, our God and King. We thank you that you're with us. We thank you that you're for us. We thank you that you've claimed us. We thank you that there has never been a moment of our lives that you have not been the God who says, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere human beings do to me? We thank you that you're putting confidence in your people this morning. We thank you that your spirit is in our midst this morning to make us more like Jesus and to draw our lives more fully into the kingdom. You're here this morning to make us the living body of Christ in the earth. So come, we pray, living Lord Jesus, that you would take these old, old words, 2,500 years old, And we ask that as you are the living word, that you would take these ancient words and pick them up and breathe on them again so that they would become for us the word of the living word to us that draws us into the kingdom. Grant that, we're asking. We say, let the words of the preacher's mouth 
And the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Verse 2. I will sweep everything away from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the seas and the idols that are causing the wicked to stumble when I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem, and I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. So there's that idol worship, a habit that's very difficult to break. The very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and also who swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him, be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice, Zephaniah says. He has consecrated those he has invited. Verse 18, neither the silver nor the gold of the people will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In other words, they won't be able to buy God off. Okay, This thing is coming no matter what. And in the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed. For he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, well, Zephaniah, thanks for cheering us up this morning. You know, geez, man, those minor prophets, guys, like these are not really the kinds of guys that like you would invite to a dinner party. They're a little, uh, you know, they're, they're grave is what they are. These guys are grave. And, um, but Zephaniah has got an important word for us. And Zephaniah sees that because of the idolatry in the land of Judah and indeed all of the idolatry of the nations surrounding Judah, there is a devastation that's coming. And the way that he describes it in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1 is a sort of reversal of Genesis. Look back down at the text if you have Bibles in front of you. He says, I will sweep everything away from the face of the earth. The Hebrew there is adama, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. The Hebrew word for man is adam and adama. So uh, we human beings were drawn up from the dust of the ground and were meant to live in this kind of organic symbiotic relationship with creation and with God. But in the surrendering of our relationship with God, all of a sudden everything starts tearing apart at the seams, doesn't it? And so what judgment literally looks like, and we know this when we see human life starting to fall apart, what judgment looks like is it looks like a tearing, okay? In fact, the old word, the root word for sin, do you know what it means? To sunder, to cut into pieces. But that's what sin does. That's what idolatry does. It cuts up our lives. It destroys them. So man and, man, and mankind and the ground are going to get torn to pieces on the day of the Lord's anger. And as the Lord progresses, or as Zephaniah progresses through this prophecy, chapter 2 and 3, you see him do something that's very similar to what uh, Amos did in his letter, and some of the others have done to a certain extent, that what Zephaniah does is he sort of goes around geographically and he starts talking about all of these places that are going to be judged, and Jerusalem winds up in the crosshairs. God's people wind up being the sort of center of the bullseye of the judgment of God. So in chapter 2, Judah is summoned to repent, and then Philistia, those old ancient nemesis of the Israelites, the Philistines, they're summoned to repent. Moab and Ammon are summoned to repent. Cush is summoned to repent. Assyria is summoned to repent. And then finally Jerusalem, which had been the apple of God's eye, Jerusalem is also summoned to repent. 
And it turns out, as you read through Zephaniah, that it doesn't, and this devastation is going to come. Now, in the middle of all of this, are we all tracking so far? Are we doing okay this morning? Everybody hanging in there? Okay, great. Just a little check-in moment here. In the middle of all of this, Zephaniah does something to a degree that a lot of the other prophets don't do. It's not totally novel to him, but it is unique how he exploits it. And what Zephaniah sees is that in the middle of all of this chaos and calamity that's coming, God is going to preserve a people for himself. Look down at chapter 2 and verse 3. Zephaniah says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you will what? You'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. So there is this people. In the midst of all of this idolatry, it appears that there are a few who have devoted themselves to seeking God. And those few that have devoted themselves to seeking God, God is going to cover and bless. Look down at verse 6 of chapter 2. The land by the sea will become pastures, having wells for shepherds and pens for flocks. That land will belong to the remnant of the people of Judah. What's a remnant? It's whatever remains, whatever is left behind, right? So the remnant of the people of Judah, there they will find pasture. In the evening they will lie down in the houses of Ashkelon, and the Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. So not only will they be protected, but they're also being given a future. They're being given a place, and God promises to restore their fortunes. Look down at verse 9 of chapter 2. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever, and the remnant of my people will plunder them, and the survivors of my nation will what? Inherit their land. It starts feeling very similar to what the psalmist said when he said that the, the meek will actually inherit the land, or as Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. This is being drawn right up out of the psalmist, right up out of the prophet. Zephaniah goes on, Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder from beyond the rivers of Cush. My worshipers, my scattered people will bring me worship. And on that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for the wrongs that you have done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on all my holy hill, but I will leave within you the who? The meek, the humble. Okay, the meek and the humble. But these are people that are not arrogant and they're not haughty. These are people that are humbling themselves before the Lord. And the Lord says that he will leave within Jerusalem the meek and the humble, that is to say the remnant of Israel. Everybody say remnant. The remnant of Israel who will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down and nobody will make them afraid. So there again, the meek will, the remnant will what? Inherit the earth. The future belongs to this group of people. And so what Zephaniah has come to remind us in every age and in every generation is that in every age, God seeks a remnant through whom he will renew his people. Because as you read on in Zephaniah, what you see is that this group of people that's left behind, they really become the cornerstone of a rebuilt people of God. So in every age and in every generation, God seeks what? A remnant that he might renew his people. Guys, this is just the pattern of the work of God, that God is always pulling people together who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, and he uses that people to create a kind of pathway in the future. He renews his people via the remnant. Now, I've had experience with this. I've told you that I've born and raised in church. I was a kid growing up in Wisconsin and born in this, non, raised in this non-denominational charismatic church. 
A church of six or 700 people in a city of 18,000 is a wonderful, amazing group of people. The Holy Spirit was moving on our church in a powerful way. And we did, I remember when I got to my high school years, uh, our youth group had kind of started to gain a little bit of traction. And uh, so we had grown to 70 or 80, 90, maybe 100 people at certain points. And we thought that we were kind of awesome, you know. The youth group becomes like the thing and everybody wants to go to youth group. And we had like a youth culture and it was like awesome. And this was back in the DC talk, like Jesus freak days. And I know that some of you were there for that, right? It was awesome. It was youth culture, right? And, but it wasn't right. It wasn't good. And one of the things that the leadership of our church started noticing is that the kids who were very passionate about going to youth group, they weren't really following Jesus. They were more just kind of following youth culture or something. And so in one of the boldest leadership moves uh, I'd ever seen to that point, and still I think it's a really bold leadership move, our senior pastor along with the leadership of the church decided just to cancel youth group. That's it. Like if this is what youth group is going to be, this veneer of spirituality, and meanwhile everybody's sleeping around and acting stupid and just being dumb, right? We're just going to cancel youth group. We're not going to have it. And of course that was like concerning. And a lot of the kids that went to youth group, their parents were elders in our church. And they're like, so pastor, like what's the plan here? And I'll never forget what our pastor decided to do. He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to find those few folks who are teenagers in our church who are motivated to seek God, who are hungry for the Lord. And I'm just going to meet with them personally. So we're going to get together on Tuesday afternoons, and I'm going to tell them what I know about Jesus. <laughs> and then we're going to pray together. And Mandy and I were part of that group. And you know what we called that group? The Remnant. <laughs> because it was. Uh, those other kids. They weren't really hungry for God. They kind of scattered. They did their own thing. And meanwhile, there was a group of 8, 10, 12, 15 of us. Every Tuesday afternoon, we'd get together and we would talk about Jesus and then we would pray. And, you know, our parents were, you know, brought up kind of through the charismatic renewal and all the energy of that. They had tasted the Holy Spirit in a profound way for themselves. I don't know that we really had up to that point, but all of a sudden God started moving in a powerful way on us. And I will never forget some of those Tuesday afternoons that we would start pressing into prayer. And all of a sudden the spirit would fall in this incredible way. And all of a sudden teenagers are prophesying over each other and they're laying on the ground and they're crying snot out of their nostrils, you know, and I just, one hour would pass, two hour would pass, three hour would pass, kids slain in the spirit, not because anybody laid their hands on them, but just because the presence of God was so powerful. And I remember those moments, they like marked my life. Oh, that God can do this and that the presence of God is not just an idea, but it's like a real thing, you know? And it was from that root, the root of desire for God and a hunger for holiness, that we began to rebuild the youth group through that. And the, the next bunch of years at our youth group in central Wisconsin, it was like God moved on us and it was powerful. And it became this kind of thing that actually touched the wider culture of our church. I'm, I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, that that is the pattern of the work of God in Christ. That what God is always doing is he's looking for the motivated. He's looking for the hungry and the thirsty, those that are willing to seek his face. He's looking for the humble in the land. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. You remember that? And turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and do what? Heal the whole land around them. That's just the way that God is. That's the way that God operates in the world. And I think about even the history of this church here, New Life Church. In fact, the church that I grew up in in central Wisconsin and this church, they were born out of the same movement. That charismatic renewal of the 60s and the 70s, the 20th century, our world, our globe was beleaguered, 
two world wars and the Korean War and the threat of communism and rising secularism everywhere and people starting to flee from church and the sexual revolution and all of that and all of a sudden what you saw and religion, organized religion, seeming to be all of a sudden incapable of standing against any of that stuff. And you know what you had in the 60s and the 70s? You had groups of people all over the world gathering in the basements of Catholic churches and Lutheran churches and Methodist churches and Baptist churches and in living rooms and wherever else, camp meetings, tent meetings, humbling themselves, praying, seeking God's face. And all of a sudden, God began to move in a powerful way. Signs and wonders and miracles and people speaking in tongues. And that movement, you know what happened with that movement? It all of a sudden, as Pastor Tim was quoting before, Jesus said that if anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and let him drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, what happens? Rivers of living water will gush up from within that person or that group of people. And that renewal movement, the charismatic renewal of the 60s and the 70s, guys, that has touched every stream in the 50 years or so since. It's touched every, literally every stream of Christianity has been touched by that. That there's this been a recovery of an awareness of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the miraculous. And everybody's been touched by it. I remember being in London five or six, seven years ago now, hearing one of the speakers at this big conference, a guy by the name of Father Ron, Raniero Cantalamessa, Catholic priest. He was caught up in the charismatic renewal of the 60s and the 70s. And he'd been, at the time that he had his real encounter with the Holy Spirit, he was about 45 years old. He'd been a priest in the Catholic Church and done all of this ministry. And all of a sudden, in some prayer meeting, he gets, um, the theological word for it is thwacked. He gets thwacked by the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, this Catholic priest is speaking in tongues and prophesying, filled with the Holy Spirit. And not long thereafter, he got, listen to this, he got appointed to be the preacher to the papal household. Do you know what that is? That's the guy that preaches the gospel to the Pope every Friday in the Vatican with the whole staff there. And he served in that role for like 25 years, a tongue-talking charismatic, preaching the gospel in Rome. Guys, this is just what God does. (laughs) That he creates these renewal movements out of the hungry and the thirsty, those that are willing to seek the face of God. And somehow the movement of the Spirit among them begins to overflow the barriers and it touches everything around them. Zephaniah prophesied that very thing. In fact, all of the prophets believed that something like this would happen in the latter days. Isaiah talked about it in his own ministry. He said, here I am and the children that the Lord has given me, we are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. Who are they signs and symbols for? Everybody else. That when a group of people decides to set themselves apart, to pray and to seek the face of God, to be obedient, to set their faces like flint towards obedience, what happens is they become signs and symbols to the rest of the people of God of what God desires for all of his people. So the question that's on the table for us is what does it mean to be a remnant in our own day? What does it mean to be a remnant in our own day? And we could sit here all day long and we could talk about all kinds of characteristics of a remnant movement given the present moment that we're in in our history. But I want to submit three to you this morning just for you to think about. What does it mean to live as the remnant 
in our own day, I want to say this. I'm going to frame them as a series of commitments that I think that God would have us make as his people living in the United States of America in 2021. How about this? That in an age that tells us to belong to ourselves, we commit to belonging to a people who belong to God and who gather for worship. How about that? And in an age that wants us to belong to ourselves, we're going to hear the gospel summons not to belong to ourselves, but to belong to what? To a people. To a people. In fact, do you know that the whole logic of our baptism is that we no longer belong to ourselves? <laughs> that when we die and are raised with Christ, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We have given ourselves away. And we haven't just, I just feel the need to say this, we haven't just in that moment given ourselves away to Jesus in some pure kind of existential encounter whereby the church is an optional extra. When you give your life away, you give your life away not just to Jesus, but because Jesus has taken a body for himself, you give your life away to his body, his people. That's church, right? And we live in this time now, radical individualism, where what everybody wants to do with their spirituality is they want to march off to the mountains and have this kind of John Muir spirituality, you know, where I'm just in nature and I just love being in nature and I feel fuzzy feelings when I'm in nature and I have my yoga group that I belong to and in my yoga group I just get centered again and I cultivate good alpha brainwave patterns which helps me with my focus and my concentration so that I can be a more compassionate individual in the world, right? And that's fine. Go meditate and center yourself. It's all wonderful. But you know, in the church, we have bigger fish to fry than just getting centered. <laughs> I mean, I'm all about it. I was working on some breathing this morning just to calm down before preaching. It's all good. But when you join the church, you join a larger group of people. And you commit to belonging to this people who gathers together for worship and they lay their lives down again at the foot of the cross. We're a people. Think about how absurd it is what we do when we gather. Is that we gather together and we sing songs to this being that we cannot see, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We come and we listen to texts that are thousands of years old. And we submit to them as though the God of the universe is speaking to us through them. That's absurd when you think about it. But it's what we, it's what we do. Do you know what we do when we gather together? We give tithes and offerings. And we don't demand to know how every single little penny is spent. You know why? Because we've given our lives away. That's just what we do. Do you know what we do when we come for worship? We lay our lives again at the feet of the one perfect individual that ever lived, Jesus the Lord. And we confess before heaven and the whole communion of saints in heaven and on earth that we've sinned, that we're not all that we thought that we were supposed to be. It's all absurd, but I think it's actually prophetic, guys. In an age that's trying to rip us apart, in an age that's trying to scatter us, in an age of radical individualism, what it means to be the church is that we're gathered together in belonging to one another, belonging to God together. It's remarkable. What does it mean to be the remnant in our own day? Number two, here's another one, just to submit to you. That in an age that wants us to do one or the other, how about this? We're going to commit to being a people who speak the truth in. Now, this by itself is like revolutionary. Like who does this? 
And we live in a time when everybody just wants you to do one or the other. We say, okay, you just need to speak the truth. You know, call him like you see him, you know, tell it how it is. And that's what the world says to us. And also the church in so many quarters is saying that to us. You know, the biggest thing, the most important thing that we can do in our day and age is that we take a stand for what is right, right? Or on the other side, what we do is we say, hey, all of our opinions that's all a little explosive. You know, we don't want to step on any toes. So what we need to do is we need to be over here in this kind of mushy, gooey, kumbaya space where we all hold hands and we close our eyes and we think positive thoughts about the person standing next to us. And, you know, nobody's really bad and nobody has bad motives and we're all just nice and wonderful and it's all nice and good and wonderful and sweet and awesome. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Bible is calling us to do something like really profound. It's not calling us to sacrifice truth or the way that we see the truth, nor is it calling us to sacrifice the kumbaya fest. <laughs> but Paul actually says in Ephesians chapter 4, he says this, that speaking the truth in love, we will, can you finish the verse? In all things, grow up into him who is the head over every power and authority. Paul seems to think that the only way that we ever grow up into the measure and the stature of Christ is if we learn to speak the truth in at both at the same level of intensity. Guys, if you do this, it will make you weird. <laughs> but it's what we're called to. Speaking all the truth that we can with all of the love that we can to all of the people that we can, that is actually the thing that makes us a prophetic witness in the world. Loud, angry harangues have never changed the world, nor has the perpetual kumbaya fest ever changed the world. Somehow we got to find a way to do both. So what does it mean to be a remnant in our day? Maybe it means belonging to a people who belong to God. Maybe it means learning to speak the truth in love. Maybe it also means, number three, I'll submit this to you, that in an age that wants us to demonize our enemies, to slash and to burn, here's what we're going to do. We commit to being a people who take up the towel every chance we get. I don't know if you know this or not, but nobody has ever been legitimately won to Jesus because the Christians of their day won the culture war. Yeah, I didn't really get any amens for that. About two or three. <laughs> this is what we're always doing. We're always trying to win the culture war. What we think is that if we can get the right person in office, if we can just get this policy passed, if we can just crush that ideology out there, if we can just muster a really airtight, lock-solid biblical argument about why that thing should never happen, then everybody will be miraculously one to Jesus. And has that ever happened? But Jesus said, what would it profit a man, a person, to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What would it profit us to win the culture but lose our souls? But that's not what we've been. We have not been called to win the culture back for Jesus. You know what we've been called to do? We have been called to love our culture like Jesus loved our culture even unto death. And if they're one for him, that's God's business and not ours. 
Maybe what we're going to do in our day and age, maybe part of what it means to be the people of God in our time is that in a culture that wants us to demonize our enemies, to slash and to burn, what we're going to do is every single chance we get, especially to those and with those that are most threatening to us. You know what we're going to do? We're going to do just like Jesus did with Judas Iscariot. We're going to take off our outer clothing. We're going to wrap a towel around our waist. We're going to fill a basin with water. And we're going to get down and we're going to wash the feet of the people that are trying to get us nailed to the cross. That's what we're going to do. Or that's what I'm going to do. God help me. Right? These things, I think, make us odd in the world that we live in. These things, I think, help put us on the path to becoming the remnant. But I want to say something to you this morning that's absolutely crucial, and it's this. That there is a danger in the quest to trying to become the remnant. There's a danger. And the danger is highlighted for us right in the biblical text itself. If you have Bibles, I want you to turn over to 2 Kings chapter 25. The day that Zephaniah prophesied came to pass. The Babylonian army rose up. They swept through Assyria, as you know. They conquered Philistia and Moab and Ammon and Cush and Israel and Judah. They came sweeping through. And we read of this in 2 Kings chapter 25. The scripture says this, starting in verse 10, that the whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the, ca- the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city. So most everybody gets hauled off in exile, okay? Along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind who? Some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. Guys, these are the meek and the humble that Zephaniah prophesied. All the arrogant of the land are swept away. All the wicked, all the idolaters, everybody is swept away. But what the Lord leaves behind is these poor people, the meek and the humble of the land. And if we've been following the biblical story, if we've been following what the psalmist said and what Zephaniah said, what we think is that at this moment, the curtain's going to fall. They're all going to live happily ever after. The great days of the restoration of the people of God are now underway and everything is just going to be hunky-dory forever. That's our expectation, right? That the Lord is going to renew his people through these people. And yet we read this in verse 25 of the same chapter. That in the seventh month, however, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, who was of royal blood, came with ten men and they assassinated Gedaliah. Gedaliah was the governor that the Babylonian army had put in charge of all of those that remained behind in the land. So there's like a coup that happens here, okay, in Jerusalem. So Ishmael assassinates Gedaliah and also the men of Judah and the Babylonians who were with him at Mizpah. And at this, listen to this, all of the people from the least of them to the greatest, together with the army officers, what'd they do? To where? They, what? <laughs> you all were supposed to be the remnant, you know? All y'all were supposed to be the ones through whom God rebuilt his people. And like at the first sign of political turbulence, what do you do? You hightail it back to Egypt. 
Egypt is the place that God delivered us from. And so this grand story, which was supposed to be a happily ever after for God's people, that God rebuilds his people through the remnant, they wind up scattered in Egypt. And do you know what happens to them in Egypt? You know what they're doing? They're running from the Babylonian army. Do you know what happens in Egypt? The Babylonian army conquers Egypt too. (laughs) It's no safety. It's no escape. It's like, here's what I want to say to you. The very attempt to be the remnant might actually spoil our remnantness from the very start. <laughs> and isn't it true? Haven't you seen it in the church? The movements where people go, oh, okay, it's on us. We're going to rescue Christianity, right? From all of those people out there. We're going to seek God. We're going to devote ourselves to godly biblical principles. We're going to be a kingdom people and all that stuff. You know what happens the moment you begin to start doing that and experience some success in doing that? Do you know what creeps in? Pride. Game over. Right then and there. Game over. How many times have we seen it in the history of the church that some group pulls away to try to become the remnant and the very effort actually exposes them not only to spiritual pride, but also to anger. And it turns out that the group that was supposed to save Christianity from whoever is scattered. Zephaniah knows this, which is why he says, look back in Zephaniah 3, the Lord says, But I will leave within you the meek and the humble, the remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord, and they will do, and they will tell, and a deceitful tongue, and they will eat and lie down, and nobody will make, they will do, they will do no, they will tell no, a deceitful tongue will not be found in the, ladies and gentlemen, in the history of humanity, Who has this ever been true of? What group of people have ever risen to this standard? No deceit, no lies, none of that stuff. No wickedness will be found among them. Has any group of people ever qualified for that? No. But one man has. One man has. And it turns out that after the great scattering of the people of God, there is one faithful Israelite who remains. And the great devastation that Zephaniah prophesied falls upon him, the pure, spotless, sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he ascended into heaven. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will return again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. You ask the question, who is the righteous remnant through whom God rebuilds his people? And I answer, it's one man, Jesus the Lord. Let's stand to prepare our hearts for communion. And so here and now we lose our self-righteousness. Would you just, people of God, would you just abandon it again? Would you abandon your self-righteousness? Would you abandon your pride? Would you abandon all self-congratulation in your spirit? Would you abandon that? Would you 
Would you also abandon guilt and shame? Would you abandon your sin? Abandon it all. That's what the Lord calls us to do, by the way. Come to, just come to me. All that stuff that you've been carrying, it's too heavy for you. Self-righteousness is too heavy for you. Being amazing is too heavy for you. You know, it's all too heavy for you. Just take all of that off and come to me again simply and humbly. That, that right there, that's what Jesus uses to renew us as his people, is that willingness to be broken, to be shattered again on the rock Christ Jesus. So here we are before you, Jesus, and we make this our prayer before you. We say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And we haven't loved you with our whole hearts and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. That's the whole thing, Jesus that we're asking you to create in us a clean heart and to renew a steadfast spirit in us. Don't cast us from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from us, but restore to us the joy of your salvation and grant us a willing spirit to sustain us. And in this moment, we acknowledge that you are granting us a willing spirit. In fact, you're granting us the willing spirit himself. The Holy Spirit is coming in, flooding in, right here, right now, making us new. And so, brothers and sisters, I say to you this morning that if anybody is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you can receive the new creation that comes to you in Christ Jesus the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you give God praise this morning? Begin to lift up your voices in thanksgiving and celebration. And we say thank you. Let's sing this song of worship and response. Then Pastor Tim is going to lead us to the table.
up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. If you have your communion elements, you can go and grab them and open them up. There's such a beauty to this message where we can come and and hear this, this inspiration. What does it mean to be the people of God? This remnant And yet, just to realize and just to see that the gospel flips all of our self-righteousness on its face and says, but Jesus, Jesus will show you the way. And so on the night that our beloved Savior was betrayed, he, he took the bread and the cup and he looked at his followers and he said, every time you do this, I want you to remember that it's not about you. It's about me. That all the goodness in your life is not about what you will do, but about what I have done on behalf of you. And so he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he said, this is my body. This is the remnant that is broken for you for you so that when God the Father looks at you as Pastor Andrew said at the beginning all there is is welcome and invitation into his house welcome, invitation delight, brothers and sisters let us take the bread together and likewise he took the cup he said, this cup is the new covenant poured out in my blood. I'm going to wash you and make you new. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Brothers and sisters, let the blood of Jesus wash over you make you without spot or blemish, a perfect bride to delight in our Lord. Let's take the cup together. And if you can, just begin to sing a song of thanksgiving. Begin to praise him. Glorify him because he's worthy of it. Let him know that he is so, so good.
Until I see you face to face, until at last I want my race, remind me you're not finished yet. Hallelujah. 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 Brothers and sisters, you are his bliss, you are his joy, you are his crown. Would you open your hands and let him load you with benefit here as you go. As you go from this place, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his bright, smiling countenance upon you and grant you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. If you need prayer for anything, we'd love to pray with you. Altar ministry team can come forward. If you're new, we got a gift for you at Connect Central. Please volunteer for children's ministry. We'd love to have you. Brothers and sisters, it's so good to see you again. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord, and we'll see you next Sunday.